but it all starts in the mind and the thinking, 100%. Um, they have this absolute clarity around who they are, who they want to interact, what they want to achieve, and they're just unstoppable in the pursuit of that. Um, and then they are so meticulous with their processes and their planning. So they have the thinking and then that's layered by the processes and planning. And then they have this capacity to execute no matter what happens in and around their, their build up or, you know, they, they get to the track and they've only got one shoe or something, they'll find a way and it won't rattle them. And then the final thing is they tend to be really good at picking the people that they have around them, so the people they have in their corner. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. And today we go deep into the world of high performance. What goes on in elite performers' minds and the power of self-belief with a performance coach and consultant, sport physiotherapist and great friend. We regularly catch up and discuss some phenomenal topics. So we thought, hey, why don't we share them with you? So we're going to look at a little bit around the relentless pursuit of high performance today. She is the founder of Purpose to Perform, the sports physico and performance state with over 20 years experience working with elite athletes such as Jamaican track and field team and Olympic sprinter Johan Blake, the Australian beach volleyball team, Grand Slam tennis players, the Australian swimming team, and even the Jamaican bobsled team. It's time to find out what it means to be in a performance state, what separates the great from the unstoppable, and why our guest is the last person many top athletes ask to speak to before they go out to perform. Please welcome Dr. Joe Brown. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. I'm really excited to share some of our chats with the world out there. Yeah, it's good. It's good. You know, we've, we've had um, some amazing conversations over kind of the last nine months or so. And, and all around performance, not just in sport, but in, in general and in life and, and how people in the corporate world can also learn around what it takes to be a high performer. And, and I know for you, it's, it's everything you do. So I'm going to, before we kind of delve into that, I want to go back a little bit here. Where did you grow up and what kind of, what inspired you when you were a young kid? I grew up in New Zealand, actually, on a dairy farm and... I guess my childhood was one of those ones where my parents weren't around a lot 
And so, but I always wanted to be great at sport. I wanted to be an Olympian. I wanted to um, be in that world of sports. So I just had to find a way myself. And looking back now, I realized I had to believe in my own ability. Like if I wanted to go to training, I had to get myself there. So as I reckon I would have been eight, nine, 10, I'd bike like 10, 11 Ks in the dark to go swim training or training at the surf club. And, you know, it was before cell phones and all those kind of things. And it's quite crazy when you look back, but I always had this, this, you know, inbuilt drive and the self-belief. And as I look back on my life, it's those two things that have kind of, you know, got me through some really crazy situations and, got me to have some of those experiences that you brought up earlier. And you talked about, you know, being Olympic kind of athlete and things like that. What, what sports did you grow up doing? You talked a little bit about surf life saving swimming. Were they the key ones or were you kind of one of these athletes who likes to be in, into everything? I kind of, they were the key ones, but I definitely was one of those athletes that kind of found my way in different sports and everything I did. They said, oh, you could be great at this. You could be great at this. But to be honest, I got bored really quickly. <laughs> um, and I never really, you know, stuck to any one thing for that long. Like swimming and surf lifesaving was probably the biggest. But um, there was a moment um, when I actually started university and the coach was kind of like, are you going to be a physio or are you going to be an athlete kind of thing? You know, you can't do both. And um, I made the choice. Physio was a solid choice, the certainty, I guess, in the situation. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. You talk about swimming, which is a lot about solitude. It's it's kind of that real individual sport where you have a lot of time by yourself. But people don't realize that there is a huge team camaraderie around it. It's like being in a family. You spend more time with your, with your, with your swimming friends in the pool than you do with your family a lot of the time. What did that mean to you? Like, you know, how important was it to have those friends, have those people around you as you pursued the sport you loved at the time? I think because of the upbringing I had, that they quickly became my family and I lived quite a way out of town. So quite often I'd end up, you know, staying at different people's houses just so I could go to training in the morning and not have to bike the 10 or 11 Ks in the cold. Um, yeah, so it kind of had all these, you know, extra brothers and sisters around the place that were, you know, part of my surf life saving and my swimming family. Hmm. You know, there's, we all have influences in our lives and you talk about maybe your parents not being around so much. So who was kind of the, the key role model for you during those sort of young formative years that you really looked up to or uh, was kind of just there for you? It's a really interesting question. And to be honest, I don't think there was any one person. Um, like, and I've reflected on this quite a bit. And I think that's where I just had to depend on myself though. So because I didn't have it, I just had to believe in myself and I had to find a way to get things done for myself. Um, and it wasn't like I had a bad childhood. My parents just had, you know, 24 seven businesses. So, um, yeah, I wasn't really one person, like I didn't have a particular coach or a particular friend or anything like that, or someone outside in sport. It was actually, um, I actually looked within, I guess, from an early age. Mm. And looking from an, so, you, you know, talking about physiotherapy and physiotherapy is about helping people. A lot of the time you're mending people, uh, whereas we know it would be great if you could actually be there to help them beforehand so they didn't end up with the injuries. What 
inspired you or what what connected you with physiotherapy I guess I just always wanted to help people I always knew I wanted to do something kind of medical um, I thought I wanted to be a sports doctor and then I realized you had to deal with sick people first <laughs> so I was like oh I want to work for sports so then someone suggested physio and I remember sitting there with you know my option to do medicine and my option to do physio I'm so annoyed because neither of my parents would help me and give me an answer and that's how it was like it was always back on me and that's been my whole life um yeah you're kind of really in the control of your own destiny there so how long did it take before you were dealing with elite athletes I was really quite lucky when I was at university, my final year, we do placement as physio in New Zealand and um, the Tongan Sevens team were in town in Wellington for the big Sevens tournament there and they couldn't afford a physio, couldn't bring a physio, but a Tongan lady who I was treating from the university said, oh, my physio is not qualified, but she's pretty awesome. And so she asked me whether I'd be willing to take it on, no insurance, you know, just it is what it is. Don't even think they had a t-shirt for me um, at the time. And of course I was like, yeah, that's amazing. And so, you know, I got to um, be a part of the Tom and Stephens team. Um, and I did actually get to wear a t-shirt once and it was smelly and sweaty and pretty gross um, to run it out into the cake tin. But um, that was a um, pretty special experience. You know, the Tongans and, and with a lot of the Pacific Islanders that that real connection of tribe, that belonging, et cetera, is so important to them. You know, what was it like being in, in their environment as someone who you, you probably felt, you know, great kid, like, like a kid in a candy store being there, but also kind of go, hey, I'm not quite qualified yet, but let's just try and um, sort of fit into their, their whole way of being. It's funny. That's probably one of my strengths, I think, is I just have this personality is quite adaptable to different environments and just seem to really resonate and bond with people really quickly so kind of the more foreign the environment the better i tend to flourish in some ways um yeah and i just went in there they treated me a little bit like a little sister and it was only for a very short period of time it was like literally a weekend but um a weekend i'll never forget and you know, I just remember them picking me up and cheering when they won a match. And, you know, it was a very fleeting time, but um, instantly felt a part of the family. And I think my upbringing being from New Zealand and the way um, I think Jacinta Ardern's like, summed it up really well in recent times, like that real, um, you know, every New Zealand, you know, we're all one and um, we don't differentiate between ethnicities in New Zealand and the way they've responded to, you know, the shooting in Christchurch and things. And I really think that's quite a strong sense of who I am, have been brought up. So mm -hmm. cultural differences. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really see them. I just blend in. And that was the same when I started working with the Jamaicans, I didn't see myself as any different to them. And I was meant to do this TV interview one day and um, this guy came through up to the stands at this big huge track meet, 10,000 people and said, Dr. Joe Brown, are you ready for your interview? And I was like, oh, okay. Didn't know I was doing an interview at this point. And I walked down into the stadium, did my interview on the track and walked back up. And I, I was like, how did he even know who I was? And I didn't, hadn't thought I was the only white person and 10,000 people in that stadium. Mm. It was going to be pretty obvious who I was, but I'd never seen myself as that. 
So that's probably, yeah, how I fit it in there a little bit. Yeah, really interesting. I want to want to start diving into high performance uh, a little bit here. And, you know, if you, you've seen a lot of athletes and you've seen different people, what do you think separates the, the kind of great athletes from the real elite high performers? I really think they there's so many things but it all starts in the mind and the thinking 100 percent um they have this absolute clarity around who they are who they want to interact what they want to achieve and they're just unstoppable in the pursuit of that um and then they are so meticulous with their processes and their planning so they have the thinking and then that's layered by the processes and planning. And then they have this capacity to execute no matter what happens in and around their, their build up or, you know, they, they get to the track and they've only got one shoe or something, they'll find a way and it won't rattle them. And then the final thing is they tend to be really good at picking the people that they have around them. So the people they have in their corner. Mm. Yeah. And so important. With that team you, you kind of you talked around that whole the the way of thinking about being really relentless in a way and you know for those this is who are who are, who are out there who haven't read any of the work that tim grover has done uh, both joe and i recently read the book relentless and it started a conversation between the two of us around can you be relentless without being ruthless and reckless and and it, it was a really fascinating conversation so from from your experience dealing with you know, some of these you know, world-class performers, can they separate from, uh, can they separate the relentless aspect or pursuit of excellence from that being ruthless and reckless at the same time? I definitely think they can. And I think there's two different, well, there's more than two personality types, but I've definitely seen two and there's ones that can't and there's ones that can. Um, and... The ones that can tend to be those ones that are driven um, by giving back and the greater good and they have a completely different end game to the ones that are that ruthless and like more reckless. So, so you can be relentless, but the end goal is not just winning, but winning for everyone. And then there's the reckless and ruthless that potentially is actually just all about winning and about self. Um, and it, that's been really fascinating for me looking into that and seeing that evolve and how different, where different athletes, you know, end up when they retire. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, right? When we talk about it, it's, it's kind of that greater purpose. So yes, they have clarity of, of their, their purpose and their direction. They're going as an athlete. So I want to be Olympic gold medalist or I want to be a world champion. And they, they narrow in on that focus and go for it. The, and then also then having that external purpose as well. And, and I think that is a really good approach to it. And we see it with, you know, athletes like Roger Federer, who um, is someone who is very relentless in what he does. Um, and, and when we talk about relentless here, we're not talking about 24-7, nothing else matters. We're talking about they will do everything possible. So the right amount of recovery, they switch off at the right times. When they come in to do their sport, they're on point. When we talk about the ruthless aspect, we're talking about those that will 
do whatever it takes to win and, and are not afraid to take other people down at the same time. And then the reckless approaches, they just don't care. Um, they will mm -hmm. they will do something, but don't care if someone gets driven over in the process, so to speak. Um, so yeah, so uh, it's, it's a really, really good point. And I think there's a like the element there of like, you know, the moralistic behavior that comes into that, but also, you know, that what's your legacy gonna be? Like you won a gold medal full stop or you won a gold medal or you won three or four gold medals. And that's the other thing is like true high performers can do it more than once, right? Mm. Um, and then it's like leaving a legacy of, you know, a foundation or whatever, you know, um yeah so you talked about them they're very careful around selecting the right people around them what, what do you think they're looking for you know so say if there's someone who's a corporate person listening to this or uh, there's someone that is pursuing a goal or dream what sort of things do you want to look for when you surround yourself with certain people i think it comes down to myself personally three things so um, the people you surround yourself with, you've got to, of course, number one, be able to trust them in every situation. Um, you've got to have great communication and you've got to be able to say what needs to be said at any time, day or night, things going good, things going bad. Um, and the third is care. And when I say care, I mean care for not just the result, but care for the, about the person, you as a person. And, you know, there's so much in the media right now around, around a lot of mental health issues and athletes and, you know, every athlete we're talking about, all these high performance, they're humans first. Oh, yeah. And I think that care is so important. And some elite athletes that I see, they get to a certain level and they, they don't seem to, you know, have the right people, the right coaches or the right support stuff around them. And, I, and that element of care is quite often thing missing. So they've got, they may have good communication and there might be the trust and that skill set. but if there's no actual care for that human, mm. that's where it tends to fall down. Yeah, so if you're looking for the people to surround yourself with, if you wanna chase something and you wanna pursue a higher level, then it's, you know, trust in them. You They need to have care for you and they also need to be able to communicate with you and uh, and, and not just be a cheerleader, right? Caring is not about being a cheerleader. Yes, you need to be a cheerleader sometimes, but it's about holding that mirror up and being able to share with them what they uh, need to hear rather than what they want to hear. So uh, really important. You talked about self-belief early on as well. And, and I know this is, you know, <laughs> watching you in action and listening to you as well. This is the greatest characteristic you have the ability to put belief in people what affects people's belief so many things <laughs> um obviously life experience how you've been brought up what people tell you um at different points in your life obviously your parents are going to have a bigger role um and then as we go through teenage years we're influenced more by the media and more of our peers um past experiences memories decisions we've made uh, the media plays a huge role now um but to me the big thing is what we when we come to a point in our lives and we need to make a choice and then what happens as a result of that choice and then we start believing 
something based on the choice that we've made. So it ultimately comes back to choice. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the higher the performance someone gets, uh, gets to, is this still, like, have they removed doubt and fear or is it still there and they manage it? What's happening? I've, I think we're all, to be human, you're still going to have some doubt and some fear. Like we can say be fearless, but in reality, um, you know, the, we're all going to have some kind of fear. Um, but it's been able to, you know, put that in a box and overcome that and have a greater belief than the fear itself. And trying to change, I talk about, you know, trying to change the way we make decisions and the way we think and the choices we make make a choice from a place of trust and a place of fear. Um, and then so if you've got all, you know, you've done all the right preparation, you've got the right thinking, you know how to execute, you've gone through that, you know your strategies and you've got those right people in your corner, then you're in a really powerful spot to have that self-belief to achieve. Um, I think a lot of the time where athletes come undone is they know that they haven't got one of those boxes ticked. So they don't believe in their greatness because they know there's something that is not complete. It's like there's only four pieces, there's four pieces of pie and one is missing. So, yeah, so they're trying to get to that point where they can manage their fear, but they're trying to get to a point where they have no doubt that they're going to win. Like they've removed doubt. Yes. But they're managing fear. And then they have full conviction because they've removed that, that doubt that they can achieve something. Yeah. And they've, they've taken control of it, so they're owning it. And I think that's a really big part of this is owning it. Yeah, very good. Now, you, you, when we've had some of our conversations, you, the people, like the athletes love being around you. Like they, they love that opportunity to speak with you before they go out and perform. And I remember you talking to me a little bit around that you're, you're someone that is you're there when no one else was, right? So you, you put that belief in them by being there and being that rock for those people. Because as we said, we know we're dealing with fear and, and quite often we're dealing with some doubt until we get to that, we remove, you know, we get something right. So are you able to unpack a little bit around how this works? Um, can you draw out some of your inner genius of oh. how you're able to bring out that belief and maybe what other people can do when they lead teams or they're working with people how they can support people by giving them that belief without sounding like too big a cheerleader. Look, to be honest, Craig, I'm trying to figure this one out on myself right now. Sorry. Sometimes in life, I think we all end up in roles and, you know, if, you know, being a person or yeah, fulfilling a role that you didn't necessarily set out to do. That's just what happened. And then I've had a few conversations in recent years Well probably over the last 10 years where people have noticed, you know, me spending this last minute time with, you know, a lot of these elite athletes and having these conversations. And I talk about just holding space for the athletes. So it's, they can just be whoever they need to be in that space. So I'm not literally physically holding space for them. A lot of the times as a physio, I'm actually got my hands on them. And I think that is, I've got that trust and rapport built through that hands-on connection. There's, you know, to go voodoo woohoo on you would be, you know, there's that energetic connection. Um, and like I said, that trust. Um, but it's definitely around getting to really know the athlete and how they tick. So 
I know the athletes that, and I will, when I first start working with a team, try and start figuring out the athlete. So from a physical point of view and from the mental point of view and how they're processing, are they a person that's going to be nervous? Are they a person that needs to be hyped up? Are they a person that's going to need that last minute kick in the butt to like make them step up to the next level? Are they going to be the person I need to calm down and get really relaxed on the table? So I tend to um, judge that with every individual athlete and it's something that I've just got really good at over doing it for 21 years um, and sometimes it's knowing when to say something when not to say something so certain athletes they they just want two minutes where no one else is going to come into their world and I'm literally holding the space open and clear for them versus others need you to say something uh yeah. And do you think when you get to know an athlete, is it more around observation or is it more around asking really good questions? It's a combination. Um, being a physio for a really long time, your powers of observation are amazing. Um, I'm a great person to go traveling with because I see everything. <laughs> um, yeah, so amazing powers of observation. And it's just, you know, it's the small things. It's body language. Are they jittery? Are they quick movements, slow minutes? Are they holding head highs, head down lower, shoulders forward, shoulders back? Um, do they have a bounce in their step? Do they not? Are they dragging their bag? Are they carrying their bag? Are they drinking lots of water? Are they eating nervously? Like all those kind of things will build a picture and say over a period of maybe say a week I'm in camp with a team before they go to perform, I can see how that changes over time as well. So some athletes getting closer to game day or, you know, comp day, they'll get a little bit more nervous and they'll start, you know, bouncing around a little bit more or slowing their movements and all those kind of things. So obviously over the last 18 months, everyone in this world has had to uh, deal with the, the people they work with, um, whether that's you with an athlete or, or a leader with their, their employees online. And so how has kind of that way that you observe someone shifted now that you can only see part of their body if they even have their video camera on? <laughs> well, most of the time I try and get them to put their video camera on um, where I can. Um, and, you know, to be honest, some of the interactions I've had in the last 18 months have literally been you know, text messages and phone messages and you get to know the words and the patterns and things when that people use in text messages when they're high and low and the times of the day that they contact you means they're probably struggling with something, all those kind of things. In terms of the video calls, I do try and um, get athletes moving around and, you know, most of the time there's a physical element to what I do with them as well. So, um, I can see how they're moving. Are they slow getting out of the chair and all those kind of figures got me get, get me an indication of where they're at. And you know, I'm sitting here back in Australia right now, and a lot of the athletes I normally work with um, are in Tokyo. And you know, um, sadly, I could see an athlete the other night on screen, like really struggling physically, and it was, you know, breaking me a little bit to know I wasn't there and couldn't help, and I could just tell. And one of the coaches messaged me to say looks like they need you, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's always, always a bit of a challenge and, you know, obviously the Olympics are on right now in Tokyo and, you know, they've done a phenomenal job to get the games off the ground and get it, get it moving and hopefully can get right through the games with, uh, without COVID getting in the way. So fingers crossed that we can avoid that. But are you seeing 
different types of athletes performing better that there's there's less pressure because there are no or, or less potential stress because there are no crowds there um or like you're seeing different patterns happening or is it just pretty similar to what we would normally see with athletes I think there's different patterns within different sports. I was actually in a conversation about this today. So things like the beach volleyball, where they normally have a huge big crowd, obviously there's no crowd. So um, I think they've been heavily impacted if they're the type of athletes that are used to um, being cheered on by that. And, mm. you know, different athletes are going to respond in different ways. So some, and I know you um, talk a lot about pressure and, you know, some are really those internally driven athletes that don't need that crowd. And they've got it all buzzing going on inside and they've got their levels going up and down. Um, and then others really need that external lift and rely on that external lift. And sports like beach volleyball, that's more likely to be the case. Um, and, you know, part of what I tend to do is, you know, pick those athletes that are going to need more of that external lift as well. But um, and then there's sports like swimming where, to be honest, when you're swimming, you know, head down, cap on, you don't really know if the crowd's there or not. You look up and look around and look at the board and, you know, that's that. Um, yeah, so I don't think the swimmers have probably been that impacted by it. Um, definitely in the track and field, there is a feeling in the stadium. And if you've ever been in Olympics and been in a track and field stadium, it's a pretty phenomenal experience. Mm. Um and so that energy, I think, in that stadium would be quite different. And even though, you know, for our 100-meter guys, you know, they're on the track for less than 10 seconds, but there'll be that different energy. So unless you can kind of bring that and build yourself up, um, you know, there's not that lifting the arms and hyping up the, cra the crowd like Bolt would love to do, you know. Mm. So uh, I, I think it's definitely going to be the ones that have that different capacity to control their own internal pressure switches um and you know pump themselves up if required and i think the other you know big huge thing is obviously how well they've traveled through covid and coming back to what we we're talking about before and that belief if they kind of know that everyone else on the track next to them for instance got to train right through covid and they didn't that's going to be you know part of the pie that they're going to perceive as missing so um that can really imp impact on where they're at Talking about beach volleyball, actually, I saw they've still got the big DJ there. So he, I hope he's getting paid well because he's got his work cut out for him <laughs> to create that atmosphere for those athletes. I know. I saw that. He's like arm pumping and everything. I was like, yeah, go, dude. <laughs> Spin those discs, man. Let's get it rocking. Uh, a lot, a lot of fun. Um, but you've talked to me around internal moments of precision. And, and I'd like you to expand on this a little bit. And it, it has got to do with belief and, um, and obviously with performance, but I'd like you to expand on what internal moments of precision means to you. Interesting, because I've been um, reflecting on this quite a bit lately, and I probably wouldn't call it internal moment of precision anymore, but so I think I've definitely had moments in my life where I've been guided to a, a point and had to make, a, I guess, a big choice and been able to weigh up all the factors and, you know, go through um, the points that we talked before, like, you know, what's my belief around this? What's the purpose? Is it connected? All those kind of things. Um, and then I think you can only really make, have those internal moments of precision now reflecting back on it 
if we've had this conversation before is it actually comes down to when you get to that point that is that instinct and we've talked about that a little bit more recently and now that i look back it's like when you do something enough and you've got all those boxes ticked so you 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 know you're connected to your purpose and your intent you've got the planning and processes in place you know exactly how to execute and you've got the right people in your corner then you can actually make those decisions easily like they just happen and you can just be in that high performing level and you just act on instinct and what i've realized in my world as a physio and even to a certain extent a coach like i've just got to a point that i just do it on instinct like i don't even think mm -hmm. about it so when you ask me some of these things um it's just instinct and if you talk to a lot of you know the world's top high performers in sport and probably in corporate as well they'll tell you the same thing like they'll do that keynote speech or they'll make that decision that internal moment of precision and they haven't actually really thought about it in that moment it's just happened no. hmm. essentially i think that's what it is yeah that instinct is a result of the work that you've done before it's a result of your experience experiences yeah. over a repeated um re repetition of it as well you know, and, and a lot of people just kind of think oh yeah it's that it's kind of thing that just pops up out of nowhere well no it doesn't it, it's a result of a lot of hard work in behind the scenes impulse is a bit different right so mm -hmm. acting on impulse means you're less likely to have any experience on it you're just reacting in that moment to I'm going to do this without even kind of having that experience to it. So we've got to, yeah, I think being able to decipher between what could be an instinctive moment versus an impulsive moment. Yeah. And I think it's definitely like that react or respond, right? So are you going to react in that moment or respond? Mm. And obviously uh high performance moment is one where we actually respond rather than react. And I think, you know, that's one you know, attribute, I guess, a lot of high performers I've seen, like they've taught themselves, and this is an instinct, they've taught themselves not to react in those moments. And like I said, overcome those hurdles if something goes wrong just before they compete. Um, and that's that comes down to that grit and that mental toughness, all those things that um, we hear bandied mm. around in high performance world. So we hear those things, but do we really know what they mean? So mental toughness, grit, what do they mean to you? you know, how would you define them? I think there's such a different thing for every person, depending on the circumstances and, you know, the adversities you've lived and what life's run at you. Um, and we all have different levels on it. So grit for one person will be completely different for another. Um, for me, grit is a little bit like relentless. It's like that just, you know, ability to keep going no matter what. You're just going to get to that top of that mountain before sunset no matter what life throws at you and, you know, handling all those setbacks. And I think a lot of time in sport and I think in life itself, you know, people get to so far to where they, you know, so close to where they want to get and then they just have one setback and they let it pull them back down the mountain. And when I look back over my life, and I'm currently in the process of looking at writing a book, and, you know, I've been a person that, one, yes, had that self-belief, but every time I've been, you know, heading towards a goal and, you know, not, life's really knocked me down with something, I've been able to come back and, you know, actually take a step back and look and, you know, try and find a way to, one, find the silver lining, um, but to learn from the experience and, you know, how can I be better 
what can I learn? How can I be better? What has this taught me? And, you know, life can throw us some pretty horrible things sometimes, but it is always that choice of how we deal with it. Um, yeah. And, you know, maybe talking around one of those things that life throws us, uh, I think around four years ago, um, your sister tragically passed away in a, uh, out in the surf um, over there in New Zealand. And, you know, for that, for you dealing with that situation where, you know, at a point they couldn't find her and, and a really challenging time in your life, what was going through your mind at that point where you found out that she's missing and they're now trying to find her? Oh, gosh. Moment in my life I'll never forget, Craig. Um, yeah, so I was actually working in preparation to go and work at the Australian Open down in Melbourne and um, had all these missed calls from my sister's phone and she never normally would call the actual phone. It was back when we used Viber back in the day. Um, and I was like, oh, that's strange. So I called back and my uncle answered the phone and he said, oh, we've lost her. And I'm like, what do you mean you've lost her? Like, is she at the shops? Like, where's she gone? Um, he said, oh, we've lost your sister. She's drowned. And my first instinctive response was, she can't drown. I'm a surf lifesaver. I've saved so many other people's lives. How can my sister drown? And it's just amazing how that was the reaction. It wasn't like, you know, it, think it's really bizarre it wasn't about my family or anything it was about that service aspect um which is yeah it always sits in a funny place in my heart um yeah and then it was like okay I need to get on a plane to New Zealand and I came out I was still at work and my next patient arrived and they said are you okay and I said oh yeah my sister just drowned come on through <laughs> but that was my relentless, like, you know, I'd committed to this patient to treat them and that was what had to happen. And the patient was like, no, no, you're, you're, you know, you've got to go home. Um, yeah. So it's amazing how we all process things different. Yeah, it is. And, and how did that, you know, obviously dealing with a, a very challenging moment in your life, you've gone, you've now leaving what you love doing at the Aussie Open, you go back to New Zealand to support your family. How did that change your life at all? And the way you perceive things? 100%. I definitely reconnected a lot with my roots and who I was. And obviously my family um, realized I now had a different role to play in my family. So previously my parents had been, I guess I'd always seen them quite resilient and things. And then all of a sudden they were, you know, broken and we all were, but I had to take on this role as, you know, the leader in the family. And it was um, in a way assumed, but um, it was, you know, it was just as instantaneous. I had to step up and, you know, next minute I'm, dealing with undertakers and media and um, writing eulogies and all those kind of things and in this environment where your family is, you know, you're literally holding them up from falling down. Um, but I knew that that was the role I had to take on at that point in time. I had to be strong. There wasn't an option. Um, and that I would have my time to grieve and deal at a later stage. And I think 
we see this in high performing athletes as well. You know, there's a time, you know, there's some crazy stories out there of athletes, um, particularly in the NBA, of doing, you know, dealing and in football, dealing with horrendous injuries just to get um, to, you know, the next buzzer, you know, the next time out. So, yeah. And, and obviously we've got athletes um, in, and thank you for sharing that. And obviously we've got athletes at the Olympics who are going to have heartbreak um, and, and kind of sh- in really challenging moments here where they may not have the performance they want. It, it might be their last Olympics. They might have an injury. How do they, how can they deal with those situations um, how, and, and sort of pick themselves up and move on from that? I think it, like the injury versus, you know, the last Olympics, I think those are completely, can't be quite very different situations. Um, obviously, when it's someone's last Olympics and, you know, it's the end of their career, that's something that's quite premeditated. And I think I've having experienced quite a lot of grief in my life and I've tried to learn to understand it. There's quite a big difference between something that's premeditated and grieving and dealing with something emotionally and physically and mentally rather than something that like an injury that just happens in an instant so like when my sister drowned it was an instantaneous loss like an injury and so traumatic grief is quite a different process to that you know stock standard grief that we know is coming so i think you know for an athlete that's dealing with an injury the immediate impact and the kind of first aid for that person is going to be quite different to that person that's premeditated leaving um obviously someone that is looking to retire if i was in their world i would be trying to help them with strategies and planning and for you know when they do retire it's going to be and that needs to be in place well before they go done olympics now what i do with my life um, and a lot of the top guys will, and those guys that we we're talking about earlier that are, you know, those true high performers that have everything meticulously planned anyway, they have an exit strategy um, and they're all over that stuff. Um, and a lot of sports now are getting better at that, helping athletes through that transition. I think a lot of the NSOs here in Australia are actually hiring people to help with that, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. The injury one is a whole different kettle of fish and I've dealt with this one over and over. And when you know the athlete is a whole lot different comes down to knowing them and how they're going to respond. So quite often I'll know whether they're in it. If I'm in their space, I'll know whether they're the person that they need to chat now or they need to be by themselves. Um, and then, you know, where do we start? So is it someone that we need to start at? Okay. What's the first step you can, you know, get to start your rehab today or they're the person that okay let's just refocus on the next olympics and work our way back so it's trying to find that first step for them but it's going to depend on how they work and internally process things so some people just need what i can do right now in the moment other people need to look forward and be able to work backwards and it gives them a little bit more space in their own head and I suppose for those people that are listening who aren't athletes, you know, it, it could be for some of you who unfortunately may have lost your job or, you know, there's been changes through COVID, et cetera, as well. You, you know, the, what Joe's talking about here, 
are really relevant for you in your own personal life as well. You know, how do you deal with that setback of, all right, I don't have a job now. What do I do next? That shock is very similar in a way. Um, and then also yeah. knowing that you're going to move to another job or, or there's some other change in your life that you kind of prepared for, it's going to happen. Yeah. And I think it still always comes down to what you can you do in this moment? What, what are the choices you can make now? The things you can control. So you can control your thinking. Um, you can control your thought processes. I think in those tough times, you know, things like utilizing journaling, writing things down, um, obviously, you know, getting your thoughts out there, whether it's on paper, communicating with someone else, um, and then just finding whatever that smallest first step is towards, you know, the next goal or feeling better. So whether that is, you know, re reaching out to someone you need to talk to or, you know, doing that first set of exercises for that injury or, you know, sending a random email to someone that you w would like to work for. Mm. Um, and it, you never know what you get unless you ask. So, Yeah, 100%. 100%. Just take that initiative and mm -hmm. uh, go out go out after it and, and thinking and talking about initiatives here you know this has been quite a, a big year for people involved in sport and especially in your role where you're used to traveling around the world and working with different teams etc uh, you've had to deal with quarantine recently and mm -hmm. so what was life like for you in quarantine uh, returning back from working with the Australian beach volleyball team in Thailand to be honest, Craig, I loved quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of like the 0.0001% of people like, that actually I'm literally that person that says, can you sign me up again in three months? Um, <laughs> look, I was very lucky because I was traveling with Australian team that I had exercise equipment. Um, so that was a, a big help. And I also was lucky enough to have a balcony, but um, I I went in knowing, and it's a little bit like what I was saying before, when you know something's coming, you can prepare for it. And, you know, experts in any field will always, you know, talk about having, you know, good preparation. So I was prepared. Um, I had planned, you know, Zoom meetings. I had quite a few online consults. Um, I planned certain learnings I wanted to do. I planned some certain books I wanted to read. Uh, and I gave myself structure and I think structure is so important in any high performance life. Anyone you talk to that's done anything amazing in this world has structure and we all do that differently. Um, and what I figured out is I needed to have a certain period of time in the day that I was structured and productive. And so I set a time frame around that, but didn't set a time frame around sleep. So I got really good sleep. Um, eating at regular meal times really helps. Um, stay in contact with obviously everyone in the outside world, but also anyone that you know that's quarantining at the same time was really um, a big one. If you're a caffeinating person, you have to stay caffeinated. Um, and sunlight, super important. So, uh, and I think, you know, I really chased the sun. So I got sun from 2.30 in the afternoon to 4.30 in the afternoon. And I literally like paused everything I was doing and went out onto my balcony, tried to get the sun. And, it made me realize, you know, in some of these countries where people have been quarantining and isolating in these little apartments in London and, you know, all these cities in Europe and the US. And it's like, we're so lucky here in Australia with everything we've been through. But um, yeah, basically quarantine was a really great time for me. Mm. 
and and it gave you a lot of time to think as well and mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm sure you don't mind me sharing this but you asked me this uh, you sent me this great message one day and mm-hmm. it, it's a profound and really outstanding question that I it made me smile when I saw it and it sparked mm-hmm. quite um, a lot of discussion and opened up a whole lot of opportunities for you at the same time and the question was how do you walk away from being great for a chance at being unstoppable? Mm-hmm. Phenomenal question. What, what led you to asking that question? Well, I woke up that it was my last Sunday in quarantine. So I had a day to go and this, that question was in my bones, in my head, on my shoulder, Everywhere I looked, it was just around. It was, and it wasn't going away. <laughs> and I tried to do some work and other things, and it it was just my question. And um, yeah, and I basically re- sat with it, tr- tried to get rid of it, and then I realized that there was no running from it. This was, you know, my time essentially. And the question was, I knew what the question was asking me. And basically, I've been a sports physio for a really long time and I've been a performance coach as well. And I have been looking at pivoting my business more to just spending time in the high performance world. And it's what I love, it's what fills my cup up. Um, and it's what I'm good at. And I've just been in Thailand with the Australian Beach Volleyball team and been part of them qualifying for the Olympics or the men's team qualifying for the Olympics for the first time in 13 years. And I'd come in as this complete stranger and had just done what I always do, play full out, bring my A game. I was, you know, I was the energy, I was the connection. I was, all I was as a physio and really just did everything I could for this team to succeed. And they did. And I just realized that was me in my absolute greatness. My greatness is not sitting in a clinic um, in front of a patient that doesn't have greatness on their list. You know, if they don't want to be unstoppable, if they're okay with mediocre, they're not necessarily my people. Um, And this question was about taking that jump and believing in that process. And yeah, it just became obvious. I had just had to jump really. It was a a beautiful sliding doors moment. And, and I know the conversation we had that day, uh, and and it was via WhatsApp and it was bouncing back and forth and I can see where it was going. And I just, it was really (laughs) important for me that I allowed you to make the decision, not for me to go, Hey, this is what you should do. It was allowed you to make that decision. And it was, it was a really beautiful process and for anyone out there if you're a leader etc or even coach it's important when you see when you can see something so clearly that you just don't go and put it in front of that person you've actually got to keep drawing it out of them so it comes from deep with inside of them because the more that it comes from internal the more that they believe in it the likelihood of them actually going on to achieve it is so much higher and and knowing you joe i know that your next step, which which um, you can share if you're ready to, around you know how that's going to look, is super exciting. The how it's all going to look is still a little bit of process, but I would like to share, I guess, with the audience that 
the what I went through on that day was a whole physical like if you you told me I thought I'd had defining moments in my life and um, I hadn't it's like being in love you say you've been in love before and then you really fall in love and you're like oh wow there's a whole nother level well this was a whole nother level I was essentially trembling and it was it was more than nervous it was in my chest and I did a video recording and I listened to the voice and it was the voice was coming from my chest it was so powerful it was as close to a soulful moment apart from you know those really you know the grief and all those kind of moments that was the most connected I'd felt to my soul in a really long time and I was like this is uh, this this is my journey I'm on the right path just follow it and so Ever since I've been just stepping into it, um, there's a few kind of collaborations on the table at the moment that um, hopefully will bring, you know, what I would like performance state to represent to life. Um, and my inc instincts telling me it will happen. And just, I think this is a really important thing as well. And I think high performance do this really well. Um, is what I've seen in sport is, you know, sometimes you just can't force things either. You've just got to let them actually happen organically. Um, and so I'm on this organic ride right now and I'm just excited. I'm trusting it's going to end up where it's meant to be. Yeah, fantastic. And so excited for you as well, sort of watching where that's going. Now, you also have your own podcast where you are called The Purpose to Perform podcast where you get to talk with some um some amazing athletes and people in the kind of high performance world. Uh, but I, I really liked one of the recent guests, which was uh, Nelson Christian Stokes. And, and this is fascinating because, you know, obviously we, we mentioned at the beginning that she works with the Jamaican bobsled team. And, and I'm sure everyone's minds go straight to Cool Runnings and, and that really fun movie that was on TV. For you, what's it like working uh, we'll say in Jamaica where they have their own style and their way of being and here you are in a hot environment and you're dealing with a team that are, are, are literally doing bobsled, which is a winter sport. No. Well, so far, all, most of my interactions with the team have actually been either in Jamaica, so in the heat or via online um, just because of COVID and all the things. The... The power of the story of Cool Runnings and that legacy that I get to be a part of is so powerful. Um, Nelson Christian Stokes is a really great friend of mine. He is part of the original Cool Runnings that the movie was made about. Basically, him and his brother were the original um, two. And he is just one of the most inspiring inspiring, driven, relentless men he'll ever meet. Um, and I just am so, every time I get to talk to him, but like yourself, I'm just always just so inspired. And just he, the way his mind works is quite similar to mine. So it just keeps expanding, expanding. Um, and we're having a conversation the other day around, you know, me working with them and meeting them with the team, hopefully um, for their Olympic qualification that's my specialty at the moment <laughs> olympic qualification uh, for the um, winter olympic games sorry in the u.s and um yeah he he said you do realize this you'll be part of 
you know, a legacy of a story and what that brand means. And I feel it, you know, you, and when I say to people, oh yeah, I'm going to work with the Jamaican bobsled team, everyone knows Cool Runnings. And it's at the moment when the world is in such a crazy place, um, we need nothing more right now than hope and, and belief. And Cool Runnings is an absolute story of, you know, the power of belief mm-hmm. and hope. And, you know, on my podcast, Chris, you know, talks about the moment that's in the movie where, you know, they crash and they're all sitting there on their battered and bruised and they're, you know, they've probably all got fractures and things. And, you know, the crowd starts cheering and clapping and they stand up and they carry this lead to the line. Until that moment that the crowd started clapping, the Jamaican bobsled was never going to be a thing. They were never going to make it to the Olympics. They were done. Mm. But in that moment, when the crowd believed in them, they found the belief in themselves. Yeah, it's so powerful. And and obviously, if you haven't had a chance, dive into the Purpose to Perform podcast. Check it out. It's uh, one of the recent interviews. Uh, and you can kind of hear some real good insights into that whole that thing around the belief there and how, you know, Cool Running's kind of developed and what it's all about in a way that legacies continued, which is fantastic. Now, talking um, around communication and there was a one word that you mentioned to me the other day and it's called next. <laughs> And, and, I, and I love it because a lot of people get kind of caught up on what they've done before and, um, and, and kind of they, they most of the time don't even finish something. They kind of get close to finishing. We don't finish it. But next is all about, all right, finish something. What's next? And, and I, we're both like this, right? We like to complete a task, complete a project, complete something. And then we go, okay, what's next? And we move on. Uh, so how, how useful have you found next um, throughout your career, that, that opportunity to go, hey, cool, I now want to focus on something else. Oh, uh, next, done and next. <laughs> Two very powerful words. Uh, I think I've always, it's always meant that I'm always looking for the next opportunity and never get hung up or reliant on one situation to work out just the way you planned. So if you're always looking for the next so next just doesn't happen Mm -hmm. so next is pre-planned it might not be all the details sorted out yet but once i take done i'm ready to go with next whereas so many people do done or don't even get done but do done and then they might wait six months to start looking for next whereas by the time that's happened i've already done next and i'm on to the next thing and People are saying to me, oh, my God, you've done so many things. You know, you've worked with 16 different sports at international level. Wow, how did you fit that in? How old are you? And um, done next is the answer. <laughs> but it is interesting, right? So we watch it because a lot of athletes are, and there's a lot of people that are successful in other areas in life where they do something absolutely amazing and you never hear of them again. But then you get those ones out there that are able to continue on and do multiple things. And in most cases, they have actually, as you say, they are preparing before they finish that one. So, so it's not distracting them from completing that, that getting to that done of the thing they're on at the moment, but they are doing something in that spare time to make sure that 
they can then go bang or into that next thing and get off the ground running, so to speak. Yeah, and I think the thing about that is what is the driver? So some people are just driven by like that one gold medal or, you know, winning a certain event or, you know, getting that one deal. Um, whereas if you're driven by a greater purpose or, you know, a bigger goal that is to impact others, then you tend to like the done next is just the way it has to be because there's not just that one driver. Yeah, very, very good. Now, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. <laughs> so when was the last time you did something for the first time? Ooh, you're taking me back here. Um, I did quarantine for the first time a Certainly couple of weeks did. ago. Oh, I played beach volleyball for the first time in Thailand. I wouldn't play. I hit a beach volleyball for the first time, like, properly in Thailand. Oh, wow. Beach volleyball lessons. Very good. How did it feel? It was awesome. I was good at it. <laughs> <laughs> how, how good's your vertical jump on the sand? Oh, look, vertical jump was that great, but my digging skills were amazing. <laughs> Very good. Who is an inspiring, great leader? that you look up to and why? I am inspired by Johan Blake. Um, he's a great friend of mine, an amazing athlete, and we mentioned him earlier, but he gives back so much and he is a done next kind of guy, but he's also performing at the highest level in sport. He's a nice guy and he just, is constantly giving back. You know, he's in Jamaica, he's built schools, he, he's built homes for boys that are homeless. He's, you know, built houses for people that are hungry. You know, he's always doing something to give back. And I just wish, I hope that one day I will be myself in a platform that I can, you know, give back on that same level. Joe, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. and. Uh, you've shared some incredible insights around high performance, around belief, being in a performance state. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? The best way is via email. So drjoe at performancestate.com.au. Very good. All right. Web website's still up in the growing stages. <laughs> Very good. So we can pop that in the show notes uh, along with a couple of our social media links so you can check out the great work that Dr. Joe Brown is doing. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure uh, getting to speak with you today. We, we do it quite often and it, it's always uh, fascinating. I, I love the way you think. I love the way that you are able to instinctively put belief in people and your your great observation skills around okay how is this person how do i how can i adapt to ensure that this person can get the best out of themselves uh which is really really um it's just it's just a real delight to watch and and see you do that uh, you know we talked about early on growing up in new zealand and and cunning finding that space as a swimmer and surf lifesaver and and really being enjoying being part of that kind of family, that, that tribal culture around something that is quite, has a lot of solitude to it, but there is, 
there's a whole sense of being and belonging together, which is so important for people in life. Uh, to talk about, you know, the the challenges that you're faced, not only in kind of your sporting world, but you know, even transitioning in business and and what you're doing in life to to go from that shift of working with uh, just the everyday person to going, you know, what I now want to work with the full time with those top elite athletes that are really focused on and driven on delivering high performance all the time. Uh, some great stories there of talking around you know, your experiences with some of these athletes and teams and, and giving a real good insight into maybe what's going on in some of the minds of people at the Tokyo Olympics that's happening at the moment. So thank you so much. Uh, as always, a real pleasure. Um, so thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Craig. It's been fun. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.